Good morning, afternoon to everybody. Uh, it's good to be with you today. Talk about 1 Samuel 31, a stunning chapter about the beheading of Saul, um, which was allotted to me by Lee Travaskas and my dear friends at <laughs> Trinity College, Queensland. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, including this one. Um, and you, have you ever thought about that, that when you read the parts in the pastoral epistles, right, when it says, oh, 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 when you go back there, get me my scrolls and my cloak and my other stuff. And he's like, right, we'll do it. That's part of what we call Holy Scripture, the Word of God. And so it's like, what? how is that profitable for correction reproof? So all sorts of questions come up from the Scripture. The Scripture solves questions and then it brings up new questions as it answers other ones. It's interesting. Um, thanks for your prayers for the talk tomorrow. That's been the primary focus for the past two months for me. Uh, part of the way that I'm reading this text is through the hermeneutic of Saul's failure um, and seeing how God works even through imperfect things to actually bring salvation to come to pass. Uh, so we'll be kind of looking at that element of it today. One verse that I want to just have in the back of your mind as we begin this is one that you could easily you know, gloss over if you're reading it, but I'm really going to focus on this as we bring everything together in just a bit. So just hear this verse. Well, it starts off interestingly. Verse 9, they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the houses of their idols and to the people. They carried the good news that Saul had died. And, and these are the, the Philistines who are doing this. So we're going to come back around to that at the end and say, how does that good news kind of get transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ, who is also killed, but who in his death and in his resurrection actually wins the victory. So we're going to go there. Let me pray as we begin that God would uh, work through this time. Lord God, thank you for this place and for each one in this room. Thank you for your perfect word that you give to us in Holy Scripture and in Jesus Christ himself. Help us to understand how this text applies to us and help to challenge us today so that when we hear the words of 1 Samuel, did not just be the words of revelation past, but that be again revelation in our midst, revealing to us the depths of our own sin and our own souls, but also the power of the gospel for redemption in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would supernaturally work through the preaching of your word today and that through it, our lives would again become more in the image of God, more focused on who you are in Jesus Christ for us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. When I look at this text... I see a failure, I see a defeat, and I start to ask myself, it's really tragic, actually. You see Saul's anointed, Saul's the king, and you know what's going to happen by the end of the book, but when it happens, it's, it's just kind of tragic and almost feels anticlimactic. He's dead, he's beheaded, he's carried off by the enemy. This is God's anointed. And with all the salvation history stuff that we could talk about, and we will in, in just a minute, I, I start to apply the text to myself as well and to say, I know what failure looks like, right? 
Most of us know what failure looks like. We fail daily. Some of us fail hourly. Um, you know who you are. Okay. And so do I. And we start to wonder, we know the kind of trite, hey, God works through our failures in, in all those sort of things, which is true, right? But we start to think of ourselves, well, sometimes we think, oh, Saul's the bad guy and David's the good guy. We know he's coming up in 2 Samuel, so I'm going to be like David, the conquering one, the virtuous one, until the Bathsheba stuff or whatever. Um, and that's just a weird way to read the Old Testament, right? Because we're all a bunch of fallible, messed up human beings who God uses to accomplish his purposes, just like you and just like me. Um, so it's not who's the, the moral exemplar of the universe. That's Jesus, actually. Um, but, you know, still, I think it's good to turn ourselves and put ourselves into Saul's position. Because Saul was an anointed king of Israel, and most of us are not that important when you compare yourselves to Saul's role. Probably none of us will be prime minister or president of the United States or any of these things, or even president of the Uniting Church. Um, and, and, and still, we're part of God's salvific plan and redemption. Um, what about our failures? Is there a redemptive purpose to our failures? Uh, and what I'm going to suggest to you today is that God's faithfulness precedes our failures and that Christ's faithfulness completes the promises of God. Right? So that our failures are part of God's redemption. But I think there's a problem when you say that. Here's a problem. And I'm trying not to get cranky about this. The problem that I see is there are two approaches to our failures. It's true, God works through your failures. You don't have to be per perfect. God will work through everything that goes wrong. If you're beheaded, God can still work through you and all these things. Um, you know. But the, the two approaches that I see, and they're problematic, is one is complacency and acceptance. I was sort of like, of course I fail, because I'm a wretch, and I can't do anything but fail. And of course I'm going to fail. Look at me. I'm wretched, right? And the other side of it is contrite hearts and repentance. So if we have a sort of learned helplessness, a sort of celebration of mediocrity, which we then you know, call under Christian theology you know, you know, human sinfulness or something, we sort of have this self-defeating idea that we can never change, that we can never be holy. And we see our failures as sort of part of the fabric of the gospel, even. And sometimes Luther talks like this, like, sin boldly because you're saved by faith or something. And it almost increases vice. That's one approach. And I think you've got to beware of that approach. And I see that in the church and we say, you know what? You're not perfect. You don't have to be perfect. You'll never be perfect, friend. You'll never be perfect. And you start to think like, yeah, so I'm not even going to try to be perfect. The other side of it is, if when we fail, that failure leads to repentance, then that's actually called faithfulness. So I want to look at the first one, mediocrity, celebrating mediocrity when we fail. Um, I had this one guy that I would teach, actually I used to teach trumpet. Not just guitar, I would teach trumpet, trombone, and flute, and all these other wonderful instruments. Uh, and... This one guy was 46 years old. I would drive to his house on Saturday mornings, and we had the Hal Leonard Trumpet One book that middle school students use. And every Saturday morning, he'd pay me $25 to come and teach him trumpet. And we got to exercise two in the book. There was, there was 50 exercises. We got to exercise two in the book over the course of three years. <laughs> 
<laughs> Over the course of three years, we got, and, and exercise two in the Howlander book, you can go look it up if you want, is hot cross buns. <laughs> and we, after we would utterly butcher hot cross buns for the 47th time, I would say, I would say, Nick, do you think we could move on to exercise three? And he'd say, whoa, 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 whoa. He would, and I'm not even putting it on. That's how he would say, whoa, whoa. Let's walk before we run. <laughs> I don't want to say, Nick, brother, you're not even walking. <laughs> you are drowning in the river of mediocrity. And, and he had to sort of learn helplessness. Like, look, you know, it's just and this fly that's around my head is so presumptuous and arrogant. He's, 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 this tiny little fruit fly is coming at me. So if you see me doing that. But, but Nick had this idea. His real name wasn't Nick, obviously. That, um, I just made that up. But his, he had this idea that, oh, it's OK. I'm never going to be a trumpet player. It's OK to be mediocre. And we, we don't have this kind of approach to anything else in life, right? Where we say, our failures are good. Our failures, like, let's celebrate them. They're part of the fabric of, of joy. Uh, what if you play sports? Has anyone here ever played rugby? I know Lee has. He showed me how to punt the ball, whatever you do. Um, yeah, Neil's, I know Neil, and you've uh, co coached sports and been a referee for, for a number of different sports. When you play a sports game, one of the things that really grates against the depths of the interiority of my being are when you have these coaches that say, kids, it doesn't matter if you win, okay? It doesn't matter. Look, no, no, seriously. It doesn't matter if you win, and it doesn't matter if you lose. It's that you play the game, right? Nonsense. There are losers in sports, and the losers don't get a trophy, right? And that's good because it's better to play a game and win, but the, the point is not to say, when you fail, that's the end for you. It's, it's just not to say, hey, what's the big deal, man? I'm complacent. I'm celebrating mediocrity, because that's the gospel. Right? And sometimes that's what we do. Like, hey, look at Moses. He was, didn't know what he was doing. And, and Paul had a thorn in his side and whatnot. And so you know, everything that's wrong with me, that's part of you know, the, the way it's supposed to be. But it's not the way it's supposed to be. God will work through your failures. God providentially uses our failures. Right? And his faithfulness precedes and goes on from our failures. But God doesn't celebrate our failures, and he doesn't ask us to stay in the midst of them. What God asks us to do is to repent and to have contrite hearts, right? and to practice penance rather than to celebrate mediocrity. And what does that look like? Well, and this is clearly where I land over here. Not that I do it perfectly. But I think what we need to do is when we see something like Saul and we see ourselves there and we say, we have failures, what about our failures? How's God going to use those failures? We have to ask, what are we meant to do or meant to repent? So I, just another example from this is preaching. Uh, when I first got saved, because I worked at a church before I was a Christian. Some of you have heard this story. I was a worship leader at a church when I was an atheist because they paid me and they gave me food. Uh, so that's why I did that. Some of you are saying, that's not proper. Well, look at me now. Okay. <laughs> look how far I've come. Um, anyway, uh, when 
in that church I first got saved, the pastor was preaching on sexuality, something which I don't care who you are, if you're a human, you've lusted, probably. Right? If you're a human, you've fallen sexually in some ways, and you've been uh, guilty of that, no matter if you're you know, gay, lesbian, straight, or whatever. You, there's, there's an you know, impurity to us when it comes to our bodies and the way we think of sexuality. And that's not meant to condemn us. It's meant to convict us and to call us to holiness. Um, of course, that's a big issue of debate right now anyway in the church. What does it look like to, for sexuality to be holy? Uh, you want to know more about that? Come to the talk tomorrow. But I remember what was really striking to me is that the pastor said, uh, and this was kind of a uh, kind of church. He said, look, young men, you're sleeping with your girlfriends. You're not married to them. You're using them like an object. Stop it. How dare you treat them like that? Now, when have you heard somebody say that in a church? When you come to flee sexual immorality. Okay, now Paul's not condemning people. And, and it's just this whole like rigmarole. And you go, and just beat around the bush and go, you know, we say things like, oh, he doesn't really care about sexuality because he only mentions it six times in the Bible or something. What he really cares about is this or that or the other thing. It's like, no, no, no. What really struck me that day is when he said that, I started weeping at the end of that sermon. Why? Because the gospel called me to repent. The gospel called me not to be complacent, but to flee from sin and to flee to Jesus. And my sexual failures, like all of my other failures, were not something that I rested in and settled into. They were something that I ran from and ran away from. But it was, if you're running toward Jesus, you can't be running toward sin at the same time, I think is the point. And, and so... Yeah, I broke down. And some people say, it's too harsh. You know, you can't take that tone. But what I needed was someone to say, hey, stop doing that. That's not the way to live. And it changed my life when somebody just finally told me the truth. And my heart couldn't do anything but be shattered and broken and repent and turn to Jesus. Right? We look at the beheading of Saul and we go, what a loser. <laughs> You're not like David. You're not anything. Right? And then we look at ourselves and we, and we look in the mirror, goodness gracious. I mean, not physically, I guess. I mean, some people have said, hey, you're growing a beard, man. That's cool. This is not intentional. <laughs> this is allowable laziness. And there's something about having this kind of like wiry face, too, that if you go into a, a, a debate or critical dialogue, it's a little bit more oh. intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> You thought you were getting someone gentle like Jesus, but instead you got a theological porcupine. Sorry about that. See, Paul's got the fluffy sort of beard, where you go, that's sophisticated, shampooed, sophisticated, and slightly Eastern Orthodox looking. Whereas mine is, you want to mess with me? Nah. But that, 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 that preaching of repentance told me to look at failure as something to repent of. And when you repent of failure, that results in faithfulness. It doesn't stay as a failure. And you look at Saul, it's easy to, to, to kind of, you know, look down on Saul. But there were a lot of things that Saul did that exhibited repentance throughout the narrative. And we see he goes, oh, I was going to do this, but I did that. And there's this moments of repentance for Saul throughout 1 Samuel. So not to completely throw him under the bus. One that's more important and that's more dear to my heart is when I had a schism in leadership, which I talked about in Jesus in the church, 
What I'm talking about is a fundamental disagreement with someone that you're in leadership with, where it results in brokenness. Have you had that sort of thing happen in the church? Expect it if you haven't. Paul calls ministry a job that is like a hardworking farmer, a soldier in the army, an Olympic athlete. He doesn't call it a cushy job with benefits. If your soul isn't ready to fight, just become a dentist or something. You know, like, there's plenty of teeth needing to be cleaned, and they've got your name on them. Don't go into ministry, because it, you're going to have to fight in a tough battle. But you can do it because God's promise precedes all the failures that you've had already and all the failures that we will continue to have. The idea is, what do you do with those failures? Do you get complacent in them and sit with them and soak in them and stay in them, or do you repent and turn? Boom. Schism with Shane. Shane was the, and he didn't mind if I use his name, because we're in a period of now of reconciliation, right? So Shane and I had completely opposite views in the church. He uh, believes women can't be ordained. I strongly believe they can be. He believes God ordained some people to hell, um, bardian on uh, election. So we hold different views. And we would get up in the pulpit and preach the different views week after week. And he's like, ah, I think we ought to have a talk about that. And him and I just ended up splitting fellowship, and we weren't able to hold it together. For years, it was this kind of unspoken, unreconciled animosity between us. What actually happened was we failed as brothers in Christ. We failed to stay together in, in the midst of that. And what happened was we broke each other apart. And when you've been wounded by the church, you're wounded. It's not like, oh, no big deal. I'll just go join another Jesus club. It's a wounding that takes a long time to heal. And it makes you do things that are reactionary. It makes you do things that are downright sinful. But as I was preparing for the Jesus in the church, and this is not to say, look how good my repentance is. I, I was just moved. I'm like, I'm talking about how great the church is and how we need the church. And if you don't have the church, you don't have Jesus. And then I was thinking, wait, wait a minute. There's still a brokenness deep in the depth of my soul and in my heart that hasn't been dealt with. There's a failure that's been accepted and not rejected and repented of. And that is the sort of thing that leads to death, not life. And so I got on the only thing, since I don't know his phone number, I got on, on, I got on the Gmail, and I, I sent him a, a note. And this is what the note said. Uh, I said, I just wanted to let you know how much wounding, inadvertently, no doubt, existed in my soul from our fellowship ending in the manner in the way it ended. It is really regrettable, but in my mind, with some time, I've come to see it as a paradoxical blessing that if we can reach reconciliation, the gospel would have overcome even our failings, I wrote to him, which are many, speaking for myself. Though our story and ministry together contain both blessing and wounding, I think in the end God is showing me that his redemption is strong enough to heal and reconcile even what we couldn't hold together. And then I say, in Christ's love and the Spirit's power, John. And then he wrote me back and said, yeah, let's start talking about reconciliation. Right? Because our, our fracture was a failure of the unity that God's supposed to bring. It was like saying, we're both beheaded souls and we're just going to stay there. And that's fine. But what it actually increased was woundedness and vitriol and hate. Um, and so, yeah, if I had stayed away from repentance, it would have been 
acceptance, and acceptance kills you, but repentance leads to faithfulness. I just want to wrap this up by relating it back to this verse, because I made reference to uh, verse 9, where it talks about uh, the Philistines taking the body of uh, Saul and bringing it into the city and putting it on the wall and those sort of things. And it says they were pronouncing the good news. And in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which I know we have Hebrew scholars here, but I'm looking at the Greek version of the Old Testament just to say, is that the word that is used for preaching the gospel in the New Testament? And it's the same word. So I just thought that was profound. And if scripture is inspired and brought together by the Holy Spirit, I thought it was profound that before Christ, who is the anointed one, like Saul was an anointed one, and David will be the anointed one, and Christ comes in the line of David. I just thought it was interesting that the Philistines defeat the anointed one, and they take his body in its failure, in its defeat, and they are pronouncing, this is good news. They're gospeling about the defeat of the anointed one. And you notice David's reaction, even after everything that's happened, if you go into 2 Samuel, it's not like, whoopee, now I get to be king. He's, he's kind of lamenting at what's happened and has a respect because he knows that God's anointing on Saul was a holy thing and that there's a heaviness to it. Right? So the Philistines walk out proclaiming the good news that through the victory and military might we have defeated the anointed one. And in that particular narrative, it just sort of, they take the body back, the, the Jews, and they bring it, and they burn it, and they bury the bones. And it just kind of drops off, and then you go into 2 Samuel. But if we're reading through the lens of Jesus Christ, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's actually that, once again, an anointed one of God has been brought under the myth of redemptive violence that says, I know how to solve this. We kill, we crush, we defeat, right? And that's how we win the victory. But the gospel of Jesus Christ that is proclaimed is actually not that the crucifiers of Rome win the victory, but that the crucified God who's raised again has won the victory. So it's not until the New Testament that we, we know what good news truly is. I mean, there were people walking around in the first century saying, I've got good news. The kingdom has arrived. Caesar is Lord. And, and the so-called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome existed. And the peace of Rome existed by lines and lines and lines of people being crucified along the sides of the road by the powerful ones who win the victory. And just like the Philistines had so, won a so-called victory against Saul and against Israel, um, people thought that about Jesus, that Rome had won the victory. But actually, I think the power of the gospel is it shows us that even in the failings of Israel throughout history, and the failing and defeat of Saul, that the ultimate trajectory of God's plan through all those people is redemption. And that is a powerful thing to me. And again, I would encourage you when you read a failure in the Bible to put yourself in that position. Not to beat yourself up, but to, but to remind yourself, to remind all of us, that when we sit and get comfortable in our failure, that leads to futility, that leads to death, but when we repent and turn from our failure, that is the essence of faithfulness. And you say, how, just we'll end with this, right? Have you ever thought, my faith is so weak? How could it ever possibly sustain me? My faith is full of doubts. 
how could it ever possibly be enough for God to accept it? And I would encourage you in this way, that your faith is not the foundation of your salvation. God's faithfulness is the foundation of your salvation. God's promise to Abraham that he would save all the world through Israel preceded not only your existence, but preceded your personal faith. His promise that he would take the covenant curses on himself in Genesis 15 preceded the minuscule amount of faith that we all have that teeters to and fro and back and forth between unbelief and exuberance, right? His faithfulness precedes everything about us. His faithfulness is the foundation of our salvation. His faithfulness is why we're even sitting here. It is not our faith primarily that is the mechanism of salvation. It is Jesus Christ alone. Our faith is our acknowledgement in the present that we belong to him. It is by his work alone that we even get to stand here. And so, yes, we will fail. We all fail. Saul failed. But those failures are seen within the covenant arc of God's history and creative redemptive purposes. And you are part of that. And yes, your failures can be overcome and can be the means even in spite of which God accomplishes his purposes. But as we look at those failures, we don't have to say, that's just the way it is and things can never change. But we can recognize that as we bounce back from those failures, we're helping to bring as agents of God's kingdom and as messengers of reconciliation, we're helping to bring God's kingdom covenant purposes to pass. Now, I'll just end in prayer uh, and then we're going to have communion. Um, I'm just going to end in prayer, I think. Yeah. So I'll continue to go on and on. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We had, I think, three chapters today to look at. We looked essentially at one verse. But every word that comes from the mouth of God is powerful, is packed with intentionality, is providentially preserved through the ages, and is put in front of us so that in it we can encounter you. And so help us today as we say to ourselves at the end of a semester of theological college, we don't know if our faith is strong enough. Of course it's not, but your faithfulness is. We don't know if our faith is correct enough. It's probably not, but you yourself have given yourself for us, and in Christ we have it all. And so just remind us today as we eat together, as we pray, as we uh, take communion, that we just submit ourselves totally to you. And Lord, help us to be bold leaders that tell people not to stay in their sin, but to turn from it and thereby find the fullness of life in Jesus Christ. Amen.